Voices of Experience, your audio and video access to interviews, insights, and information that will help you speak more and speak better. Voices of Experience is brought to you by the National Speakers Association. Now, here are your hosts, Stephen Iverson and Pilar Ortiz. Welcome to the new year, and thank you for making VOE part of your monthly activities. Pilar and I have prepared a special edition focused strategically on business development. Happy New Year, Stephen, and to all of you. Welcome to this first edition of Voices of Experience 2016. And thank you for the feedback and all the comments regarding the content and the interviews. We are glad you like them. Also, check out the first edition of Speakers Magazine this year, as it includes great articles to help us grow as professionals. Our guests in this edition jumped right into the conversations about their best practices and business models. They've shared personal and professional knowledge on what it takes to develop a viable speaking business. And on this edition, we have on video, as well as audio, an interview with Susan Fitzell, CSP, and our very own VOE segment at the end. So make sure you click on the video icon at the bottom of the app to watch them. It was wonderful to have Stephen visiting Florida. Let's get started. Barry Banther, CSP, is a speaker, consultant, and author of the number one bestseller on Amazon, A Leader's Gift, How to Earn the Right to be Followed. You're about to learn that when you get obsessed with your customers, they get obsessed with you. Thank you for being here with us in VOE, Barry Banther CSP, with an amazing topic, a wonderful topic, and I am sure you have the magic formula to have repeated clients year after year to grow our business. Welcome. Thank you, Pilar. And if I had a magic formula, <laughs> it would be locked up somewhere and I wouldn't tell you. So, no, I don't have any formulas. Uh, this is a dream for a yes. lot of speakers. Yes. So, let's start there. How do we do that? We are lucky if we get a same client three or four times, three or four years. Mm-hmm. But you are talking about building a business and growing the business year after year with the same clientele. Over 20 years, we've been blessed to have many of the same clients. Some of those clients, I'm now on new ownership in that company. In some cases, it's second or third generation of a family business. So it has to be intentional. You have to make the decision, I want repeat business. It doesn't happen accidentally. But here's what I discovered a little over a decade ago, Pilar. If you're going to do this, if you're going to get repeat business from the same clients over a long period of time, you have to become obsessed, not committed, not passionate, You have to become obsessed. And I've, in my life, found there are three obsessions that I have to nurture and feed in order to be able to do this. The very first one is this obsession. You have to be obsessed with your expertise. It's like you go on that first date and you feel like you're falling in love. And you're just obsessed with this person. You want to talk to them all the time. You want to see their face all the time. You want to hear from them all the time. You must, number one, become obsessed with your expertise. If you're a humorist, if you're in sales, if you're in motivation, if you're in management, if you're in leadership or customer service, it has to be an obsession. Now, here's what I mean by obsession. You have to program all of your Internet services so you're getting the latest information that's happening on this topic. You're getting that information to your desktop every day. You have to read voraciously every day. And not just what you're reading on the net, but reading what you're holding in your hand. You have to be observing. You have to observe in non-clients. How do they deal with this customer service issue? How's this person? How do they deal with management issues? You're obsessed with your expertise and getting better at your expertise and knowing that tomorrow's work is yet to be done, but yesterday's behind you. I have to focus on today. What will I do today to become even better in this expertise? And so it's an obsession. You can't let it go. You can't forget about it. It's there all the time. And it's a smart obsession. It's not only to think about it. The competition is out there. Too many people are doing the same thing. So it's really being proactive. The the marvelous uh, American uh, scientist uh, Einstein said this. He was asked once, how does it feel to be the smartest man in the world? Here was his answer. He said, I'm not the smartest man in the world. And then here's the key. He said, I just stay with a problem longer than anyone else. 
Being obsessed with your expertise means you're going to stay with that topic. You're going to stay with that expertise long after your competitors have gone to another idea. They've gone to another flavor of the month. So it means that I'm really going to stay with this problem. I'm not going to give up on it. I'm going to look at it for a long, long, long time. We have an example in the southern Midwestern United States, a company called Chick-fil-A. Mr. Truett Cathy founded Chick-fil-A, and all those years ago, he had a small restaurant in Hateville, Georgia, and he would watch people eating their fried chicken. And, and so he today will say, I didn't invent fried chicken, but I did invent the chicken sandwich because Mr. Cathy was obsessed with helping those customers experience eating that food more than just once a week. We have to be obsessed with their expertise. We're constantly thinking about it, constantly observing, constantly reading, constantly growing, constantly getting better in that niche that we've determined this will be my obsession. And then something happens overnight and people will say, oh, it was overnight, <laughs> quote unquote, but it's not such a thing. Well, another, another statement that's encouraged me along the way is this one. And uh, the attribution is uncertain, but here's the statement. Innovation consists of looking at what everyone else is looking at, but seeing what no one else sees. You can't do that unless you look at it. You can't do that unless you really observe it for a long period of time. So the more obsessed you are with your expertise, the more innovative you become. The more you begin to see what others who are only taking a casual glance will never see. With a different eyes. Second one, being obsessed with about your clients. Whether you call them a client or a customer or in some cases a patient, you have to become equally obsessed with them because what really matters is them. I, I grew up, and you can tell by my accent, in the rural part of North Georgia, Western North Carolina. My father owned and operated a sawmill, and that was the life I grew up in. And my dad said something, though, that really impacted my life. He said, Barry, you won't worry so much what people think about you if you realize how little they ever think about you. They don't care. <laughs> They're thinking about themselves. And so we have to become obsessed with our clients. And here's what that means. That if I have a client I'm working with, and I would like to keep that client as a re repeat client or on a retainer for many years, I have to know as much about their products, as much about their processes, as much about their people as they do. So I have to begin to create a file. I'm gathering every piece of public information about that client. I'm asking them to make available to me their internal reports with confidentiality. I'm frequently speaking to different people who are working that business. I become obsessed with their customers. Who are their customers? Who are they trying to solve a problem for? Because it's only then when I become obsessed with my client that my client senses something. And I had a client say this to me, and it was very rewarding. He said, Barry, I'm not always sure why I hire you, but he said, here's one thing I know, that when my business gets in trouble, you're the person I want to be in trouble with. And I asked him, I said, will you, will you do me a favor to help me understand that? He said, well, you seem to just be relentless about learning about our business, and I believe you'll help us find the answer. So being obsessed with your client sends the message to that client. You are as important to me as my business. You're important to me as our contract. You're as important to me as any other customer. And so that becomes really important that you become obsessed with them. I had an interesting thing happen with this, Pilar. My family threw a birthday party for me. It was a, I won't say which one, but it was a big birthday. A big one. And they surprised me. I thought I was going to dinner at, a, at a, our little yacht club in the town we live in with my son and daughter-in-law and my wife and uh, my granddaughter. We get to the yacht club late. And there are cars everywhere. And I said, I hope we made a reservation. I don't want to have to, you know, stand at the bar to eat my birthday dinner. We opened the door, and the entire club was filled with my clients. Almost uh, a little over 200, about 225 of my clients were in that room. Competitors. <laughs> and and, and they, they're large family businesses, and they're all sitting at a table together. This one family client sitting here, one, they, they had never met each other, but they're all in the room. So after the shock and all wore off and they've sung happy birthday, the clients get up to speak, which was very kind. I was just blessed. I'll never forget it. But one client made a statement that I logged in my mind quickly. He said, I was just talking to this family business over here that Barry works with, and I made a discovery. He's doing for them what he does for us. I thought we were the only one. I turned to my older son. I said, we've got to break this party up quickly. <laughs> we get all these trouble. people out of here. So when you're obsessed with your client, and it's genuine, this won't, you won't be able to last if it's not genuine. When you're obsessed with your client, they really believe you've got their best interest at heart all the time. And it's thinking about them, not you. It's yes. not about sending emails, sending marketing pieces, calling mm -hmm. all the time. It's really being part of what they are. Exactly, Pilar. A question I'm often asked is, what value would you bring to our organization? That's what the prospect might ask. I quickly respond, 
I can't bring any value alone to your organization. But together, whether it's in a keynote speech I'm delivering, a training program I'm writing, helping you write a particular article, a column, or a book, whatever we're doing, if we collaborate together and we work together, together we'll create the value you're looking for. And somebody could be thinking, what well, that works in leadership, maybe customer service, but what about if we have another topic and it's humor, it's entertainment, it's... Well, let's take humor as an example. So suppose I'm a humorist, and I wish I were. I have great admiration for our NSA humorist, and I wouldn't dare try to tell them how to do their <laughs> <Me> job. <neither. laughs> but on this topic of being obsessed with your client, client hires you for an event. Obviously, they want you to bring in entertainment. They want you to bring a value of looking at things differently. They want to lower the stress, perhaps, among their employees. So you look for a way to transmit that, not just in that humorous event you do, but for example, could you write a humorous column in their monthly newsletter? Could you be a coach to some of their leadership team who really are taking themselves too seriously? Maybe the CEO needs to deliver a presentation and he needs to be a little more lighthearted than he's been in the past. Maybe they have a customer event where they bring customers in and you as the humorist could appear on their behalf to be the same blessing to their customers. The more you become obsessed with a customer, no matter what the topic, you'll find places, I call them platforms within that client to be able to share your expertise, your intellectual problem. Now, here's the third one that's really pivotal. I'm obsessed with how my process will integrate with their process to produce the results. So it's not enough for me just to know, for example, in, in my area of organizational development or leadership of a large family business, it's not enough for me just to know that Pilar and her family business faces this issue. I've got to know how the processes or the intellectual property that I have, how that will mesh with you to get the desired results you want. And that requires me, I've got to first of all be obsessed with the expertise or I can't do this. I've got to be obsessed with the client or I can't do it. But now the real competitive advantage for obsessed speakers in NSA is that they find that, and we might call this the magic formula, how do I integrate what I do with what you do so that it happens in a way that it seems natural, it seems seamless. And you say to yourself, I, I want this person coming back again and again and again. I was sitting in a, in a manager's meeting in a company that was my client, had first become my client 20, almost 21 years ago. And I'm sitting there and I look around the room. The president's new, the vice president's new, the owners are new. I had, I'm a consultant and I'm sitting there as this person with seniority in the room. But I recognized why. Because the new owner had said, Barry, you understand our processes very well. That's what the previous owner told me. So we need you to help us now mesh our new processes with their processes. And you'll do it in an unbiased way because you're not on the payroll of the company, so to speak. So, again, that third obsession, being obsessed with how does the process the company uses every day, what do they use to communicate inside the company, how do they have meetings, how do they make decisions, being obsessed with that process, then applying my processes that are my intellectual property to that. So if you can imagine three circles that are connecting in the middle, when my obsession for my expertise, my obsession for the client, and my obsession for the integrated process, when those meet together in the middle, that's when magic happens. That's when the fee is irrelevant. That's when the fee is paid annually. That's when they value what you bring to them. Now, there are some dangers in this, Pilar. One of them is this, getting bored with all of this. Because if a lot, of, a lot of us as speakers, we love to learn new things. We want to, what's the next shiny object, what we can look at. So the way that I avoid that is that I, I, I make it my practice to constantly be looking at one thing that I've never done in my expertise that I've got to get better at and finding one thing in my client's life that I've not paid attention to and trying to create one better process. So you have to work at not become, letting it become stale because it can become stale if you're not careful. After a couple of years, you don't want to be bored with your own topic, yes. and that's another way to keep it relevant. Yes, yes. Very good. So after all, we had a magic formula. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife would tell you that the magic formula is this. I don't take any, and I don't know if you knew this, but I don't take any money for my consulting, my speaking, or my training. Uh, when the client gives me a check, I turn it over to a foundation. It's called the Foundation for Paying Our Mortgage, the Foundation for <laughs> Tuition for Our Kids, the Foundation for Automobiles. Now, Barry, go back out there and bring more back to the foundation. And so, then we become obsessed with that foundation, and it, <laughs> it works for everyone. Barry Banther, CSP, thank you very much for sharing with us this formula, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you, Pilar. It's been a great pleasure. Sarah Michelle, CSP, has dedicated her career to helping organizations and associations grow the net worth of their people 
by teaching them how to expand their network through professional speaking and training services. As an expert in adult learning, Sarah will give us some ideas to increase participation, opportunities for networking, and peer-to-peer -peer interactions, always thinking in the return on investment and attendance. We're at the table with Sarah Michelle, CSP, and here's an interesting title, Vice President of Connexity with Velvet Chainsaw Consulting. So let's just start with VP of Connexity. Connexity is actually an old tech term that we borrowed. Matter of fact, Amazon, eBay, they would tell you they're in the Connexity business. It's about when community and connection collide. And we felt that meetings, conferences, live events need to be in the Connexity business because that's the reason why we come to conferences and meetings is for that community and the connection. So my role in Velvet Chainsaw is to work with meeting clients who want to deliver more Connexity before, during, and after their event. The learning that's happening online now, right, 24-7, there's content available for free, 24-7, inundated. Matter of fact, most of our clients are offering lots of pre-webinar, lots of content before they even show up. So that's what you want to be doing. So kind of flip the classroom so that you're pre-educating people online before they get to the live event. And then when they get there, you're maximizing and you're, uh, you're creating that intellectual equity that's in the room and letting people wrestle with the content that they've been drowning in to make sense of it to take to actually get some outcomes to go back to work and make changes to do their work faster better easier so it's that that big change around that people are working virtual right i mean mo it's amazing when you look at audiences now how many people are literally coming to their live conference maybe it's their annual meeting or maybe it's their annual association meeting and they're seeing people face to face for the first time maybe in a year i work on a virtual team there's six of us we don't even we don't co we don't even live in the same states so when we get together virtual or face to face it's this tacit knowledge sharing, right, that happens where that can't be replaced online. Because when we are in the same room with people and we're reading the body language and you roll your eyes when I say something and I go, ooh, tell me more about that, you can't get that online. So there's a lot of research around that, around what happens when we are together in the same space. And so we want to create meetings where we allow people to do that tacit knowledge sharing, to um, build that community, feel part of a community, because it's a pretty you know, we're living in a time where we've never been more connected than we are today, yet most of us feel pretty disconnected. So I think the live events create that opportunity and that unique place for people to feel connected to a community and to actually get a lot of that information and knowledge they're seeking to make themselves smarter. And that's causing meetings to actually change in the way they're formatted and delivered. Yes. So what are the trends now? we should be aware of. What are they asking for? What we're hearing from our clients and on the research that we've done on the speaker reports um, that we've put out, how meeting planners are using professional speakers is we're hearing things like they want the speaker to be the guide, the sense maker, the facilitator. They're asking for uh, you're going to see shorter, and we've already been seeing this, shorter delivery formats instead of the hour and a half traditional session. And part of that is They'll do a 90-minute session as long as there's going to be interaction in that. The, you know, the really, the new, um, the millennials coming into conferences, and there was a, there was a, a while we weren't sure if millennials were going to show up to live events. They'll show up, but they want to co-create, and they want to have conversations. And, and the idea that the speaker is the smartest person in the room is just gone. It's, it's, it's not, it's not the truth anymore. The truth is, is that there's an incredible amount of resources in the room that have a lot to say about the, about the content that's being shared. So the speaker is now the facilitator of the discussion, providing some content pieces and then allowing people to wrestle with that content and provide that pureology and peer to peer sharing that they desperately want and need to drive more connections to drive deeper meaning to the content and also way better chance of the learning becoming stickier so when they show up at work, there's some transformation and to actually to skill and attitude change. So I think that's another thing for speakers is that there's going to be an expectation that you are going to be part 
of uh, what happens before, that you're going to be maybe doing a webinar, hosting a Google Hangout. There's going to be some kind of help with the content marketing for that event. Then you'll be at the event. And by the way, you may be a keynote slot, but you're going to be asked to do a breakout as well. Um, that's going to be expected now. It's it, it's not going to be like, oh, um, that'll be, you know, another, you, you're not going to be, you're going to get a full fee. Their fees are back up. That's the good news. But there is an expectation that you are, co-creating and part of this content marketing piece. And so the whole speak and flee model doesn't work anymore in this, in this, in the times that we're in. And then what are you going to do after? So there might be an, there will be an expectation that you will do a webinar or host a Google Hangout or something that kind of keeps that learning sticky and keeps that conversation going. And meeting planners are, are under the gun to deliver more networking value. This is the reason why we come to meetings. I mean, if you ask anybody at NSA, why are you here? They're going to tell you they're here for the connections. They're here for the hallway conversations. And we're not, and our association is not unique to that. Every association is struggling with how do we get people in the hallway, right, to come into the rooms. Well, the way you get people in the hallway to come into the rooms is to create conversations in the room. That's what gets them to come in so that they don't have to go out in the hallway to have discussions. And so we have to really, as a speaker, look at how do we see ourselves? How do we, we got to change our mindset that we are guiding conversations, we're facilitating the discussion, thinking of really good questions that people can wrestle with. And that's how you get your high influencers and your veteran attendees to come into the room. Because by the way, you need them in the room because your first timers and your newbies want to interact with them. And if they're all out in the hallway, then they think, why there's no value in this session. I need to be out in the hallway. What are other things that they are asking for in that speaker report? That is an mm. ev evaluation and yeah. it's a survey and it's only one meeting planner that can answer that survey. Yeah. There are other ideas that they are giving us, but we have to listen in order to catch up. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a really valuable information in there on how they find speakers. I mean, definitely video is huge. Video is the number one way that they're finding. Referral. Actually, referral was number one. Video was number two. So personal referral was the was the way that they are now selecting speakers. So they go to their network. They go to other people who have worked with you. So the more you can – I think the value in, in really developing relationships and speakers who are divas and difficult to work with, no matter how good you are, you don't have a future because it's just <laughs> – you know, no, this doesn't apply to celebrities, okay? If you're a celebrity or you're listening to this and, you know, you've got a New York Times bestseller list and you're on demand, you can be a diva and people will pay that money. But the rest of us – Credibility, yeah. reputation, hard <laughs> yeah. work. I mean, it's just – the reputation is huge. So being somebody people want to work with, we had a lot of data in there around what – what turns off meeting planners and what will make a meeting planner never hire you again um, that's in there. But, you know, the video, um, it was interesting. You know, the book was important. Uh, having a social media presence actually was scored kind of low. That was, oh, really? that was interesting. That wasn't as important to them as it was that you were – uh, you know, the, the video was huge and that they could see you and that they could see and they didn't even care about it being well-produced video. It was just show us clips, get us, you know, we want to see what it's like to be in that room with you and definitely being able to show that you can that you can facilitate interaction and that you can work with them to help create this co-creation in the room and getting that pureology happening. Sarah, help me with that. I'm thinking a traditional keynoter yeah. who's so used to that 60 minutes to 90, mm -hmm. and now they're hearing they have to not just deliver their content, but also break up that time and the flow of their thoughts to engage, to allow peer-to-peer -peer mm -hmm. dialogue and facilitation. Mm -hmm. what, what could you say to that traditional keynoter would be the, the starting point of thinking through their programming so they are achieving what the meeting planners are, are yeah. doing? Well, first of all, I, I think the 90-minute keynote is definitely going to die. But I think what I would start with first is looking at your content and, first of all, chunking it. So really going to, you know, looking at in chunks of 10 to 12, also being willing to say goodbye to some content. I mean, you don't have to give it all away. What can you do before? What, what information could you give before you show up so that they are wrestling with that and then you're you're doing some dialoguing? Really thinking about... Um, 
they're what keeps people awake at night. I, I think the customization is – oh, that was another thing in the report that's it's huge. There is an expectation you will customize, and that doesn't just mean that you throw in the name of the association mm-hmm. and you, boom, you've customized. It means finding out what keeps – those people up at night. What we know for sure, the research we've done at Velvet Chainsaw, why people come to meetings is to solve problems and get solutions, period. They're they're problem-centric. They're not content-centric. They're problem-centric. So the more as a speaker, you can find out what is keeping these people up at night, what are their problems, and then what solutions can I provide to those problems? That's customization. It's not just throwing in the name of the client. So I think really wrestling with that and then realizing what part of my content isn't addressing a problem. I'm going to lose that. I'm going to let go of that. Chunking it up and then creating questions that people can then wrestle with that. And and it might be if you want to do a 40-minute piece where you're delivering the content and then you're going to, if you're not strong at facilitating, work with the meeting planner and say, I'm going to do my 40 minutes and then can we get a facilitator to then facilitate, here's three questions I'm going to give the facilitator that they need to get, they can help wrestle with. Mm -hmm. That's great. A meeting planner will be like, all right, great. We'll bring in a facilitator following you. That's okay too. But I think you've got to realize you're not the smartest person in the room. And there's intellectual equity here that you can be leveraging. And so going to the planner and, and even just offering that piece, how would you like that? How would you like me to try to get them wrestling with that? I'm not super strong at facilitating, but I can give some questions that I think would be great for that. I will be available. I'll be in the room. you know. And as people are wrestling and we debrief, I can step in and talk then. I mean, there's lots of ways to come about that. It really is no longer about you, about the speaker anymore. It just really is about serving the audience and realizing that they want to co-create, they want to be part of the discussion, they want to get that tacit knowledge, and the more we can deliver that in session rooms, the more you're going to be rehired. Thank you very much. Powerful information, new trends. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks Thanks, for having me. Niche markets. We're told all the time, if you really want to be successful as a speaker, you've got to make sure you find your niche. And there's a big debate on how does that work and even a debate on how to say it. We have with us Susan Fitzell, a learning and productivity strategist, and she has a unique niche. We're going to talk about how to make the most of those niches as well as being prepared to change it up once in a while. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you. So your niche is? Right now it's the education market and um, it's been my market for well almost 30 years as far as I started as a teacher. And, and you don't speak to students, is that it, teachers? You speak to I speak teachers. to teachers. So I started as a teacher and now I work primarily with teachers and um, school administration but I also at, also at times work with other industries also. And what we are going to be talking about applies to any other field or niche. Exactly. Because it's about marketing that message right. to those needs. Right. How it do is. you do it? Well, one of the first things that I think um, was important for me to learn was that I needed to not only identify what I was good at and my passion, but I needed to figure out how to take that passion and my area of expertise and apply it to the the market that um, I was working with and in a way that they would buy it. For instance, my very first topic, which I don't even speak about very much, really never anymore, <laughs> is, um, was bullying. But I started bullying at a time when um, that really wasn't a big interest in education. At the time, the niche was character education. Mm-hmm. So when I was passionate about bullying and I wanted to figure out how do I get that out there? How do I get paid to deliver talks on bullying? I had to think about what will sell. I, and, and I see a lot of emerging speakers who sometimes feel, well, I'm passionate about this, X, Y, Z, and they want to just sell that. But the thing that's important to remember is someone's got to be willing to buy it right. or else you won't make it as a speaker. So at that time, um, I had to figure out how can I get people to buy a workshop on bullying? Well, character education was big. And I thought, well, if you bully other people, you don't have good character. So therefore, I think that (laughs) bullying has to do with character. And you mentioned before we started recording, mindful is something, it's a topic that probably there is no money in the educational field. So 
So, right, yeah, I see a lot of um, workshops now, you know, as I'm perusing the internet and doing Twitter, people are doing mindfulness for teachers. And so my recommendation for anyone doing that topic, if they really want to make it and get it into schools and, and have it impact students, is to figure out who's going to pay for that and what would it need to be called? Maybe how could you even tie it into <laughs> achievement? Because everything has to be tied into achievement or the current trends or where there's money budgeted and allocated for. And that doesn't matter if it's just education, it has to do with any niche that you're in. So we have a passion that we absolutely love. For instance, it was me with bullying, but they weren't buying it at the time. So, but they were buying character ed. So I changed my title to include character education. And the minute I did that, people were buying it because I called it character ed. And then I would go in and I'd say, okay, well, in order to have good character, you know, students need to know how to work relationships and solve conflicts and, and, not, and nurture positive relationships, not bully. And so they, I took what I was good at and wove it into what was being purchased at the time. So and sometimes that is the expertise we have Mm -hmm. really does meet a need, but they're not really talking about their needs, they're talking about what's trendy. Yes, yes. So it's reshaping the words that you're using, your marketing, to really get to the need and find the solutions, even though it's kind of under the umbrella of the trend. That's right. Okay. That's right. And I don't feel that we should sacrifice our own integrity or values or or try to shape it to something we're really not good at and not our... I think we should... Keep with what we're actually good at, but maybe open our minds to looking outside the box of what we call it to see how could that fit the need in the market right now? How can I shape it? And in the education market, I've had to do that over and over again because the trends change about every three years. And that makes me think, I, I, probably you have seen this video clip in YouTube that is a, a blind gentleman and a homeless, and he has a sign that says, I'm blind, please help, but the coins are not really coming in mm -hmm. and there is a woman that changed the words mm -hmm. it's a beautiful day and I cannot see it right. and then the money starts coming. that's right we ref they reframed what his need was in a way that other people could relate to and therefore people then are willing to donate most of what I've learned to work with my niche I actually learned at NSA and <laughs> I learned whether it was my local NSA chapter or the, at the conventions, National NSA or Speaker Magazine or listening to VOE. Really? Yes, I mean, I listen to it in my car. And most of it is geared towards business. So every single thing I do was a strategy that was given to speakers who are working in the business or corporate industry or sales. And I then took that knowledge and applied it what in the way that would work with the education market. And one of those messages that I've gotten over and over again over the years is the relationship, how critical the relationship is. And when I first started hearing about sales, and I knew nothing about sales when I entered this, this market, um, it was called nurture marketing. And I think there's still something out there about nurture marketing, but really now we call it relationship marketing. Networking. You know, there's another one, there's a word, right? It started nurture marketing, now it's, it's relationship marketing. That's what you hear now. and. I, what I decided to do right from the beginning is really keep my clients, anyone I had that I connected with, in the loop. And so I started early on by when it was snail mail and I would send every um, quarter, I would actually send a, uh, an envelope with, with tchotchkes in it so that people had little toys to expect every quarter. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually I, I did more email as everything changed. I evolved my marketing strategies and then it became emails and then it became, you know, maybe virtual electron freebies, you know, they could download. But always stayed in in touch with my my clients or you know my newsletter people by keeping people on my newsletter by making sure that I continually provided items of value that um, I had multiple fast multiple ways to reach my clients so I looked at where are my clients so in NSA maybe 10 years ago everyone was talking about LinkedIn you need to get on LinkedIn, you need to get on Twitter. And this is where you have to look at your market. Well, where are my clients? My clients at that time were not on LinkedIn. Teachers were not on LinkedIn, school principals were not on LinkedIn, and they were not on Twitter. Where were they? Facebook. And the administrators were reading my newsletter. So I worked those two markets. Well, I've noticed about three years ago that now there were a lot of school administrators on LinkedIn. 
So now my sh I shift my focus and I start working LinkedIn. And then again, being aware of your market. Who's your client? Where are your clients? Then I had to shape it to Twitter. I am amazed at how many educators are on Twitter. But the beautiful thing about Twitter is that not only are educators on Twitter, now when I'm working with writers, and I'm doing work with writers with, with my using technology and speech to text to take what I've learned working in the education niche to help other authors. It doesn't matter what field you're in. Now I'm working that market through Twitter and, and, and somewhat on LinkedIn, but a lot of writers are on Twitter. And then I also have another little niche that I'm, I'm working um, for just business people who might want to be more productive and need more strategies for that you know to be successful in a job and I'm focusing that mostly on Twitter I'm starting there so I guess what I feel has helped me to be successful is you know, knowing my market knowing what will sell what they'll buy um, then knowing how to stay in touch with my clients and nurturing that keeping them in the loop and then also being willing to keep my eyes and ears open to know where they're going next thank That's you Susan fantastic and being flexible mm -hmm. is helps be, to be successful. Thank right. you very and congratulations much. congratulations on 30-plus years in your niche. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I wish that you and I could have just a short period of time to sit down and maybe talk with each other about how we could supercharge our business strategies for 2016. Wouldn't that be great? Well, we might have that opportunity. At the 2016 Winter Conference in Austin, Texas, February 26th through the 28th, there's going to be an incredible focus on reinvention, transformation, and change, where you and I are going to get a chance to learn how to maximize our expertise by exploring different delivery methods, discovering future trends that could shape our business, experience facilitated mastermind sessions, or choose to enhance your existing focus through powerful concurrent sessions. From the insightful pre-conference workshops to the very closing that's results-driven, I think this event could really help you and I move ourselves and our businesses forward. Christy Ward and Gary Rifkin are co-chairing this very content-rich event in what they're calling the wonderfully weird city of Austin, Texas. And I've got an inside peek to the agenda. On Friday, Pre-conference workshops are going to be led by Candace Fitzpatrick and Jessica Pettit, and they're designed to help you understand your unique expertise and message. There's a powerful opening that's focused on transformation and change being led by Randy Pennington and will feature Wendy Keller, Judson Lapley, and Tracy Brown. On Saturday, there will be focused mastermind sessions called Cadres with a kickoff with Chris Clark Epstein. There will be concurrent sessions throughout Saturday led by futurists, business development experts, and thought leaders from our very own NSA membership. And get this, there's going to be a visit with world-class journalist Dan Rather. And that night, just for fun, there's going to be an evening of food and camaraderie in a simulated Austin street fair. And then on Sunday, the morning session features Sally Baskey and Melinda Emerson. There will be other concurrent sessions and cadre opportunities for you that morning with a closing session, and I'm really excited about this, a closing session featuring the phenomenal best-selling author of the book, Do-Over, John Acuff. Well, if you haven't registered yet, I hope you do. This could be an absolutely phenomenal opportunity to kick off your year and maybe your decade. I hope to see you there. does it take to become a wealthy speaker? It's difficult to navigate an industry where everybody has a different opinion on the strategy for success. After 25 years of springboarding speakers' careers, Jane Atkinson has the model down to a science. Not sure what the first step is? Let's hear from her. We are so excited because you, you're the author of... The Wealthy Speaker 2.0 and The Wealthy Speaker. And over the years, you have really teamed up with some speakers to help them get clarity of their messaging, their position, and their really their business. And so we're really grateful to have some time with you to help our listeners 
get to the place where they really are dreaming to be. And you have a method to help them get the clarity. Yes, and uh, the methodology that I use in my business, it's the framework for the books, it's really the framework for everything I do. And I do, by the way, recommend that everybody else have that kind of a framework, you know, kind of like a three-part formula, is ready, aim, fire. I don't know why threes work, but Lou Heckler says they do, so I believe him. So in the ready phase, we get crystal clear on what we're selling and we develop some marketing language around that. And then in the aim phase, we take that clarity and we roll it out into our marketing materials, i.e. our website. And then and only then we move into fire, which is rolling out to our target markets. And I'm sure you all can relate that some of us fire without really doing the ready and the aim. <laughs> I was going to say that. How many times do you see that mistake? The fire before the ready and the aim. You know what? It's just so common. I've seen it a lot and I've also done it a lot. And it's just, I just think it's something that we, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Why do you think we do that? I think because we're so anxious to really tell people what it is that we're doing, what our next thing is about, and we often don't get really clear on who our audience is. I'll give you an example. You decide that you're going to write a book and your book is serving maybe two or three different markets and masters and then about a quarter of the way into the book you think, oh, this is so hard to write. Why is this so difficult to write? Well, that's why, because really, had you picked a lane in terms of who is the ideal reader for the book, it's much, much easier than to write. So what are some, some ideas that can help us take that first step in your process and of getting ready? Getting ready. Clarify. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Joe Calloway gave me the phrase, pick a lane. And I think a lot of people... Uh, have probably picked a lane and in some cases might even need now to narrow the lane. Really getting clear on who your ideal market is, who your ideal audience is, and uh, really understanding what problem you're going to help them solve. So let me give you an, ex an example. Let's say I'm a decision maker and I'm looking at speaker A versus speaker B and I want a leadership speaker. And so speaker A speaks on leadership and team building and communications and time management and social media. Whereas <laughs> speaker B has written several books on leadership. Who am I going to choose? I'm probably going to choose the person who is the expert, the person who has taken the deep dive into their topic area and you know, maybe just to get there, you ask yourself the question, well, what do I want to be known for five years from now? And that can sometimes, you know, help you get there. So once you are ready, and only once you yeah. are ready, <laughs> the aim would be to have all that information consistent in a website, in the marketing materials, in the business cards, in the logo, colors, and so forth. Exactly. So one of the things that we talk about in the ready stage is creating a strong promise statement. So lots of people call it unique selling proposition, a tagline, their brand promise. There's a lot of different ways to come at it. I just think promise statement makes it very clear that I'm going to put something on my in my marketing that allows people to see within 10 seconds how I can help them. So I have uh, the Wealthy Speaker University is one of my brands and the promise is catapult your speaking business. You know, do you get it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Clear. Easy. Yeah. And so uh, a strong promise statement is really one of the big things that I see missing on a speaker's website and, and it needs to be on every single page. Sometimes they'll have it, but it'll only be on the home page. And a lot of people are finding us through our about pages or through our contact us page. And you really want them to know, you know, how you're going to help them solve a problem in the first 10 seconds. Of course, like this, you know, this is just the world according to Jane. So there's many, many different ways to do it. And for instance, there might be an exception someone who is an entertainer, straight up entertainment, that might be, you know, an exception to the rule because that's they're coming at it from a different direction. So my promise statement shouldn't be, uh, I'm a motivational speaker. 
Okay. The promise statement you're saying needs to really answer the, the, the problem. So what are the results of your motivational talks? What are you driving people or inspiring them to do within that motivation? So that's what I would try to get to in your promise statement. You know, even uh, inspirational and motivational speakers, we're often using words like resilience and overcoming challenges and things like that. So really be thinking about what is your specialty? What are you getting at? Are you helping people perform better? That's the type of thing that we want. And so the promise should be uh, very clear, not too, too long because it's not like your mission statement um, and, and about them and probably not you. Now, if you have some sort of celebrity status, then maybe the brand and the promise are all about you. But for most of us regular folk, it's going to be about them. And Choosing one is important because we tend to see many different topics, many different, oh, I specialize in this and that and this and this other thing. And by the way, I can do this also. So that's that's not going to help that person to see, okay, this is the expert in this specific. So that's right back to ready, you know, really picking and narrowing that lane. And I think people worry that they're going to be limited if they narrow their lane, when in fact, you just take a deep dive into your lane and there's lots of room to play. You know, leadership, the example from earlier, there's lots of different brands of leadership. And even even further to that, you want to know in your promise, well, what specifically are you going to home in on leadership? It could be an angle on team building or it could be in the kind of culture that you want to build in your organization. There's a lot of different versions of leadership. And so what specific problem will you be helping leaders solve? I'm glad that we kind of circled back to that because – it is helping us to get greater clarity because we're so anxious to fire. But sometimes we're going to have to go back and forth a little to get that aim right on target. Well, one of the things I think that is uh, challenging for, uh, you know, you guys doing the VOE is really figuring out, well, who who is going to be listening to this? And so even knowing exactly who the target market is for that, well, guess what? Even people who have been in the business for 25 years, they often circle back to reinvent. And that's why this information is so valuable, even for them. So sometimes you have to go back to ready and aim and then you start firing again and probably uh, people who have been around for a while they're doing that about every two years and it makes sense to do it with a book to do it with a product to do it with a keynote is not only about their brand it's about every single part of your business. Yeah, and we'll see somebody like, you know, a Seth Godin. For a while, he's out speaking on tribes, and then for a while, he goes to the next book, and and he's speaking about that. And so you'll see someone transition from book to book. And when you have that kind of an audience, you can kind of take them with you wherever you're going. People are worried, oh, you know, I'm going to lose my audience. Well, hopefully you have the same target audience and you and your ideas and your brand and your promise evolve. So you might be diving deeper into leadership issues, that type of thing. You want to talk about the fees? The fees. Because yes. that's usually the one thing that we we need to talk about. We talk about it in the hallways and along the along the path in the airports, but we don't really get a solid answer. And we are not allowed to speak about fees, right. but perception is very important. And how many of us many times undervalue ourselves. Right. Well, I would say that a lot of my clients are charging lower than they probably could be charging. And one of the things that helps you get there is really standing tall in your value and your expertise and just really knowing what problem you're helping to solve. If you're solving a leadership problem out there in corporate America, they are willing to pay for that. We have to navigate how we talk about fees here at VOE. I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to our industry when we allow ourselves to get beat up on our fees. I'm not saying any everybody should, you know, 
charge a particular amount, but I am saying that we need to have really specific reasons to negotiate our fee, and that way you have some criteria in your head, and if it doesn't meet the criteria, then you say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to take that engagement. And you know what might surprise you? They often circle back to you. Mm -hmm. They often figure out a way to find the money. So thinking about the reasons to negotiate, it might be, okay, it's multiple engagements. Uh, it's a piggyback situation where you're in a city and another, and another client books you. Uh, it might be a place where you know you're going to sell tons and tons of product. Uh, years ago, I was working with a speaker and we got into kind of the multi-level marketing uh, market and direct sales. And oh my goodness, you know, the people would line up for two and three hours after he spoke to get autographs and to buy thousands and thousands of dollars worth of product. That one was worth negotiating the fee for. Mm -hmm. You don't want to step over, you know, step over dollars to pick up nickels. So uh, there, there might be some very clear and specific. It might be the perfect opportunity. If you want to get into insurance, you know, you might speak to Million Dollar Roundtable for free in order to really uh, launch into that market. So there might be some really specific reasons. That's all I'm asking is that people don't allow themselves to get beat up on fees just because. Really be aware. And and remember, they're, you're, they're not paying for the one hour or however long that you're with them. They're paying for the 20 years of experience that went into your knowledge. They're paying for your intellectual capital, and that's worth something. So if we get ready, start to take aim, then fire, we're going to be better at hitting the target. Absolutely. And I think when it comes to firing, if I can give you just a few ideas, it would be that you want to have a very consistent, aligned messaging when you are firing. So let's say you have a blog, and back to our leadership expert, all of your blogging should go down the leadership path. When you blog on topics just because they come into your head, it's not serving you. You know, you have to really serve the master of whatever your uh, whatever lane you want to be in. So continually ask yourself, is this going to help me become known for something five years from now? When you are putting out broadcasts to your list uh, with your newsletter, that needs to be consistent alignment. Uh, so when it comes to firing, I really think that it's a process of doing the right things, doing the right things consistently. Wonderful. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. My pleasure. And now a presidential conversation with Ruby Newell Legner. Welcome again to BOE, and it's what wonderful time to talk about the year ahead. How do we plan it? How do we make it better and more effective for us? Well, there's some traditions that we have at our house that have served me well that I would be happy to share with you. Oh, okay, wonderful. I can remember about 20 plus years ago coming home and saying, honey, I think we're going to do our goals on New Year's Day. So why don't you write down some of the things that you want to do and I'll write down some of the things that I want to do and how we're going to grow the business. And then we'll, we'll look at this game schedule on New Year's Day and decide where we're going to sit down and chat. And he's like, oh my gosh, you've been to a seminar, haven't you? <laughs> and I, guess, I said, of course I have, because that's what I love education for. And so we decided to actually, we started that tradition and that ritual and we've done it every year since then that January 1st we sit down and we really review a lot of things you know the, the goals for our business the goals for you know all the things that we're going to do for the year ahead uh, that includes you know all of the the finances that we want to make how many engagements I want to do um, where we're going to travel what kind of leisure we're going to do uh, some visiting the grandkids all of those kind of things so we really sit down and go over all of those and prioritize them and but that has really made such a difference for us because two things, it's, you know, your focus because you know what you're looking for. And then you also do it together. So when I'm out on the road all the time, it, it really helps everybody know that why, why I'm out on the road. And it's a reminder that we all agreed upon this. So it makes it a little bit more palatable when I'm gone so much. And it really does accomplish those goals. So we have the things that we put up on the refrigerator and we identify them and 
check them off when we accomplish them as a group. And it's uh, it's a group effort here. You know, having a family business, it really does make that. And, you know, yes, I'm the speaker, but my husband is my number one supporter. And he does so many things behind the scenes that he has to be part of that goal setting session as well. And I know you are a systems queen. So how do you do it? You, you said you put it on the refrigerator. Do you have uh, some kind of system that works for you? And also you have it electronically. How do you do it? Of course, it's a color-coded laminated piece of paper. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the way I roll. You know, we, we break down the goals into different chunks. Here, here are a couple of the chunks. You know, we have career, and that's growing the business and the speaking business. And then the next section is education, and that's where we identify where we're going to invest um, the education money. And for I've had a tradition for, gosh, more than 20 years that 18% of my revenue goes back into education. And I truly believe that that has allowed me to really evolve the way I have because I've always invested some of the income back into uh, the events that NSA offers and some other events as well. So, um, for instance, everybody has a chance to get signed up for Winter Conference, and that's going to be in Austin at the end of February. So that's a perfect example of one of the things that would be on my list for education, investing in that. Then we go on into uh, the financial pieces. How much money do we want to make? How many engagements will that take? New contracts, um, revitalize some old ones or get some long-term contracts and break that down and see how that's going to roll. And and maybe we want to raise our rates and maybe we don't, you know, those kind of things. Um, and then, of course, there's all the exercise and the physical activity we want to accomplish every day. That's always on there. It's a big one. Um, what we want to do with the house, those kind of things are on there. And um, what things I want to volunteer and what time I want to spend in that. And what kind of travel do we want to do and what kind of leisure activities do we want to have scheduled as a family. So there's lots of things that they're all color-coded. And each under each one of those categories, there's elements that really develop into a list of five or six goals so we can really stay focused. I love the idea that you are doing this together. You're creating the goals as a team. And it's it's creating a balance between the work and the life that you want to have. But it also leads to greater business development and strategy, doesn't it? It does, especially when you add the relationships. I don't know if I mentioned that piece, but that's on there as well. What relationships do we want to grow? And that could be with clients. It could be with friends. It could be with mastermind groups. It could be with another entity or an area that you want to grow your business. So the relationships piece is the, the element that really feeds into that business development piece too. Well, thank you very much, Ruby, for a great first half of the year and a a very focused idea of what we can do to be better this coming year. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. And thank you for sharing those secrets and systems with us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Lori Guest, CSP has two sides of the same coin. What is the first topic of the year? Well, let's see. This month, our topic is another often hated debate. The question is, do we really need to do cold calling? First up to state her opinion is Lois Kramer. Lois works with speakers who want to book more business, make more money, and fully monetize their intellectual property. Clients include the superstars of speaking as well as the superstars of tomorrow. Lois, what say you? Many of us have heard people say around this association that they have never, ever made an outside sales call and they are truly fortunate but for the rest of us mere mortals i think we need to adopt every outbound sales strategy that we possibly can to grow our business and really when you think about it what is lost in the rhetoric about phone there's an incredible number of circumstances where the need for human interaction is there for example, when was the last time that you emailed or even faxed your broker or insurance guy? Like many other aspects of business management and especially selling, I think cold calling is how you see it. I think it's more than a numbers game. Whatever you want to make it, I think attitude is everything. You know, the old sauce smile into the phone, I think that's true. And that speaks to attitude. I think that there are things that you can do to guarantee success in calling. And 
I think they're critical. Number one, know, know your target market. For Pete's sakes, have a target. Have a target industry and markets within those industries. And then know who the decision maker is in those industries. Know their typical sales objections. You know, you need to do some market intelligence. If you're a target marketer, and I'm telling you, you need to be, you need to know what their sales objections are. I think that if you do market intelligence, you're going to find it isn't a numbers game. Remember, a conversation is not a monologue. And I'm confident that human interactions are never going to lose their place as technology advances, as long as businesses seek to make expensive and important decisions. You need to talk to a decision maker to convince them that you're the one they need. So I believe, therefore, that using the phone is an absolute necessary strategy for your business. And now to share the opposite side of the coin is Rob Shore. As founder of Wholesaler Masterminds, Rob works exclusively with distribution professionals in the financial services community. Through his blog, podcast, books, email list, and LinkedIn groups, he strives to book business and leave the phone handset in the cradle. Rob, let's hear your thoughts. In 1973, I worked for the Miami News. I was 13 years old and they put us in a van and take us to less served neighborhoods, that was the nice way of putting it, to go door to door to solicit for Miami News subscriptions. That's how I started my sales career and after a 35 year sales career, I made a commitment as I got to phase two, which was my speaking coaching training, that I did not want to have to pick up the phone. In order to not pick up the phone, I found the following to be very helpful. Number one, you gotta pick a lane. I work in a very small niche in the financial services community, US, Canada, Europe, total population of this community is roughly 25,000 people. So I'm very focused. I started building a blog for content. Right now we have over 400 posts. I built a podcast, Wholesaler Masterminds Radio, to get our voice out through audio. Now it's written word, now we add on audio. We have an email list that's small but mighty. 11,000, which pales in comparison to some of our listeners to BOE, but it works well for us because, again, the universe is so small. I own groups on LinkedIn, three of them, with about 25,000 members. I go to association meetings two or three times a year and speak in front of decision makers, and then I have two books that are, frankly, repurposed content from all the aforementioned content. When I take all of that written and audio content, wrap it together with the online presence of LinkedIn with a small smattering of Twitter, since that's not where I find my audience. I'm convinced, and I guess you could say I'm living proof, that you can build a substantial business and not have to pick up the phone. And there you have it, two sides of the same coin, proving again, there isn't just one way to do anything in this business. At least that's my two cents. And if you have a different opinion, just cold call me and let me know. This is Voices of Experience announcer Sam Newton. It's time to wrap up this edition with VOWE. Now your hosts, Stephen Iverson, CSP, and Pilar Ortiz. Welcome to Florida. Well, thank you. <laughs> and whomever is listening is like, what is she saying? Okay, make sure you watch the video because Stephen and I are doing this VOE in a beautiful January from Florida. From Florida on the beach. So happy 2016 <laughs> for those of you who are listening and for those of you who are watching video. Isn't this beautiful? It's just absolutely phenomenal. And yes, right in the middle of winter. Absolutely, a beautiful winter with the sun and messy hair. And we were talking about business development and how awesome is that we have the opportunity of working wherever, anywhere we want, right? Yeah, anywhere. We, in our business, it can be anywhere, any place, and any time, which is fabulous. But there's some pros and cons that come with that. Absolutely. I remember the first time after 20 years in corporate, like, my office is at home. I have to be disciplined in order to focus in the business and not being like, oh, the kitchen, I want to do this, or I have to go shopping for something. Not that I like a lot of the, <laughs> the things <laughs> that like I have to, to do, do at it. home. But it's there and it needs to be done. You know, really, I think for a lot of us, it is about 
being disciplined and finding times to work. Uh, uh, for me, I find blocks of time that mm -hmm. I do only very specific things that are important and need to be done. But it is easy to get distracted by the beach yeah. or by the laundry. Exactly. And if you are at the beach, just make sure you work a little bit. So we are always thinking about that. But it is important. And I also put on my calendar me time because as, as an entrepreneur, I tend to work even more than That's when true. I was doing it for a monthly check. That's true. And a lot of us do that. We forget to turn off at the end of the day. We wake up early and we start working right away. So making time for yourself is very important. The other thing that we were talking about is we don't have to do it all by ourselves. That's true. That's so true. how important in your business has been to find someone to help you? You know, I, I realized the most important thing that I could do in my business is to create a do not do list. Mm -hmm. I have my to do list, but there's a lot of things that need to be done by other people. And I have to ask daily, is my activity generating income or creating resource or product or maybe the connection to a new client? Mm -hmm. Those are my responsibilities. The other things I need to trust other people to do. And so maybe finding a virtual assistant or tapping into a family member or a friend who can be a part of the team or maybe even Fiverr or Elance. The power of delegating. We don't have to do it all even if we think it's faster because by the time we explain to someone, ah, 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 just do it because it will help us to move forward to greatest things. That's right. We may be doing good things, but we want to do great things, yeah, right? That's right. <laughs> Another pro is that as as a business leader who's developing their own business, you get to make a lot of your own decisions uh -huh. and you have more control and power of that. But it also means the con side is the isolation that comes from and sometimes you can feel lonely, but always good to remember that it's not the first time that's happening, it's not the first person facing this situation. And we in NSA have wonderful resources and support groups. That's right. You know, when you are at the beach by yourself or <laughs> in a hotel or at gate B69 or whatever it may be, and you're alone, you're really not alone because you can connect with Facebook, NSA members, all kinds of social media connections, or reach out to people who are in the community where you're at uh -huh. and get together. Absolutely. That is great about our business. Anywhere, like in sunny Florida in January, not by ourselves, and making sure we outsource and we find that people that are going to help us to grow. That's right. Okay. Well, good luck to you as you develop your business. We hope that you have an outstanding 2016. The best of the best this year. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.